Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the latest of my ABC Somerset podcasts. Today, we've got to the letter E, and E is for East Ling. East Ling, L-Y-N-G. It's a very small village. It lies astride the A361 road, which is the road between Somerset's county town of Taunton and the the streets Glastonbury area and it goes right the way across part of the Somerset levels which as its name implies is an area which is very much level most of it was at one time underwater punctuated by a small number of islands one of which is very important in the story of the Ling area, as we shall hear. In fact, Ling itself is a, an old English word, clank, which means a raised area of land or a, a hill. Um, it was not particularly large. It did have a market in the medieval period. But actually, it is something that lies just a little way to the east of East Ling, which is of most interest to us today. If you travel eastwards from there, you will eventually come to a slightly higher land, higher piece of land, um, which is the ancient Isle of Athelney. Athelney. Athelne, probably a personal name, and I coming from island or land surrounded by water. Um, There have been two connections with Eastling or the Eastling area and the Isle of Athelney itself. Um, one an earlier wooden bridge and then something which if you know where to look you can still see today called the Baltmore Wall. Uh, The Baltmore Wall now has a a minor road on top of it uh, but it was probably constructed in the late 900s in just the late Saxon period uh, though we we know more about it from the the middle of the 12th century when the monks from Athelney Abbey were busy reclaiming land around there but oddly enough we can't tell from which side this turf and earth wall was intended to protect from water Um, on one side it could be worrying about overflowing from the river Tone um, On the other side, it might be the flooding from the the Somerset levels itself, but we can't actually be certain. And now, although it's an ancient structure, the late 19th century, it was uh, covered in masonry. A lot of people don't actually realise quite what they're on when they're driving on this minor country lane just between the Isle of Athelney and, uh, and East Ling. East Ling has a very, very fine church. Do you talk about churches a lot? When talking about places in Somerset, but that's I don't want to turn these talks into a sort of ABC, you know, as I always say to people, another bloody church. But they do so punctuate the landscape, the square Somerset style towers. And nowhere is this more true than on the Somerset moors and levels where you get either churches rising up. Remember, built in the early medieval period, most of them when nothing would have been higher than two stories and most buildings in the area would have been single story. These things towering up into the sky would have looked incredibly imposing, which, of course, is exactly what they were trying to do, what they were trying to be. And Eastling Church has some very fine 
carved um, ends of the, the pews, some very odd designs. There's one of a, a beast being ridden by a monkey facing backwards, carved into the end of one, and several others that are of very, very considerable interest and are often very, very puzzling. The church was actually built by the monks of Athelney Abbey. So this connection between East Ling or the, the, the two Lings and Athelney, the Isle of Athelney, is very important. Why was there a monastery on the Isle of Athelney at all? Well, Athelney, very, very interesting and very, very important place. Right back to the reign of King Alfred the Great in the ninth century, because it was on the Isle of Athelney that legend has it, Alfred wintered during his constant struggles with the Vikings. Now, we have this image of the Vikings tearing around, raping and pillaging, and almost always we imagine them wearing hats with horns on them. The tourist industry in Scandinavia has done nothing to dispel this rumour, and you can buy endless plastic Viking hats there. But actually, they didn't wear helmets with horns on at all. We think this legend has come from a, a, a folk memory of the terrified Anglo-Saxon English seeing these Norsemen all running towards them like a wild bear. And by the way, the word for wild bear is berserk, which is where we get that for a particular type of behaviour from. But they're running towards them with the flaps on the sides of their leather helmets fleeing around and shooting up. And that must have looked, they think, like horns. And somehow this idea became firmly entrenched. The Vikings had been raiding the English, Irish and uh, Welsh, Scottish and French coasts for some considerable time by the time of King Alfred. Their very earliest attacks uh, are record reckoned to be in Dorset and on the Isle of Sheppey in North Kent and the island of Lindisfarne off the coast of Northumberland. And they would come, in the case of our Vikings, from either Denmark or from Norway, generally the northern part of Scotland and round to Ireland, the Isle of Man, they came from Norway. And in southern Britain, they came more from Denmark. And often you get the terms Norsemen and Danes used interchangeably between the two. But they did not, after a while, just come to raid and pillage. They came to settle and ultimately to conquer. And they conquered a very large chunk of Britain in different ways. There are settlements around the coast, little pockets, which were once sort of Norse or Danish colonies, a bit like the British going and colonising Hong Kong or Aden or somewhere like that. They would have these coastal settlements. Dublin was one of those. Uh, so was the area on the far west coast of Wales around Tenby and St David's. Tenby is actually a Viking name with B-Y on the end of it. Um, but in England as a whole, they ended up taking about 75% of the country from the East Coast, right the way across Northern England, East Anglia, into the Midlands. And at their greatest extent, they managed to get as far south as the River Thames and across to the Avon. And the English kingdom under Alfred was almost completely extinguished by these people. And yet, 
probably had it not been for Alfred, our English kingdom would ultimately have become Scandinavian, rather like much of Northern Europe did. Didn't happen. It's not a coincidence that Alfred is the only monarch in our country's history who bears the title the Great, because he literally saved the English or English kingdom from being completely rubbed out by the Vikings. And he did that largely as a result of stopping, pausing and working things out. So the Vikings, the Danes have got to this southern part of England. Alfred has had his forces turned back repeatedly and driven into the flooded area of the Somerset levels, which we've already heard about. And the story goes that he wintered with what was left of his forces on the Isle of Athelney in order to take stock. And although it's almost certainly just a legend, it's on the island of Athelney, near to Eastling, in the heart of Somerset, that is said to have taken place the famous legend of King Alfred burning the cakes. The story goes, disguised as a common man, he was lodged with a poor woman who told him to mind some cakes while she was doing other household chores. While that was happening, Alfred was thinking about battles, strategy, possibilities, and so deep in thought was he, he allowed the cakes to burn. And when the poor woman came back, she saw that cakes, which she had put much of her prized possessions into, things were not cheap, had been ruined, and she scolded him not knowing who he was. But Alfred himself, realising how serious this was for the woman, was himself filled with remorse. And this was told by later generations of a way of saying how thoughtful the man Alfred was. It probably didn't happen, but it is true that he wintered on the Isle of Athelney. And having regrouped his forces and thought of a strategy, he went on to win a great victory against Guthrun, the leader of the Danes. Um, Guthrun and some of his men converted to Christianity. Alfred himself became Guthrun's godfather. And the Danes agreed to retreat to a line of the old Roman road from London to Chester, Watling Street, today's A5. And to this day, you can still see Viking or Scandinavian place names, mostly in the north and east of England. There are a few places elsewhere. I've mentioned Tenby in Wales, just off the Somerset coast of the islands of Steepholm and Flatholm. There is Kingsholm at Gloucester and one in Bath. Uh, these are Scandinavian names, but they are few and far between here. And because Alfred had wintered there and regrouped his forces, he associated the Isle of Athelney with a great victory and saving England from pagan Viking conquest, and he founded there Athelney Abbey, which ultimately became the place that founded Eastling Church, became owner of large amounts of land in the area. They are almost certainly the people that built the uh, Baltimore Wall that I was talking about a little bit earlier, leading into the village, and reclaimed much of the Somerset levels. So it is not always known where great set pieces in history happen or where they are supposed to have happened. But Alfred, he actually managed 
to consider and drive back the Vikings from the Isle of Athelney, where where this great victory was over Guthrie, we we don't know. There's probably um, it was a place called Eddingworth in Wiltshire, but that's still much debated by historians. We do know that the peace treaty with the Danes was called the Treaty of Wedmore, and Wedmore is not very far away on the road between uh, Burnham-on-Sea and Wells. And like Axbridge, which we mentioned earlier, used to be a much larger and more important place than it is now. Uh, We don't know quite why Wedmore was associated with this treaty, because a lot of things are not certain. But Alfred is much associated with the Ling area, East Ling, West Ling, and the Isle of Athelney. I should also point out that it's not too far away from there that one finds North Petherton. And any of you that know the magnificent Ashmolean Museum in Oxford will know there is a, a precious jewel there called the Alfred Jewel, which was unearthed near North Petherton in the 17th century. It's very high quality Anglo-Saxon craftsmanship and it has an inscription around the edge in latin that translates as alfred had me made um and it's an astonishingly high quality piece so it would have belonged to someone of great status and it is almost certain that this was a personal possession of king alfred the great and it's one of the set pieces of the ashmolean museum when you visit there now but it came from central somerset and it's not inconceivable. In fact, it's very likely that it belonged to Alfred himself. Incidentally, Alfred's victory over the Danes is one of two possible origins of the motto of the county of Somerset, Somerset All, Somerset All. And it's said that either Alfred or one of his predecessors gathered the men of Somerset All together to go and fight off the Vikings. So whether it was Alfred and his battle with Guthrie the Dane, or whether it was an earlier Viking raid, some people believe it was an earlier one, which resulted in a battle near the mouth of the River Parrot, just to the north of Bridgewater. We don't know. But certainly the men of Somerset all came together and as a united body with neighbouring men, actually managed to get their uh, their county kept safe from Viking attack. So next time you see the rampant beast with the arrow, the dragon with the arrow on the Somerset flag, and see the motto there, Somerset Earl, E-A-L-L-E, it's usually written, think about how that came about, and Alfred and the Vikings. So E is for East Ling. Moving on now, F is for Froom. Froom, that's spelled F-R-O-M-E. So occasionally people from outside the area tend to mispronounce it as Froom, but it is Froom, and you'll find it in the southeast part of Somerset, not actually very far away from the county boundary with Wiltshire. Um, it's a town I've got a few associations with. As a very, very young child, I remember stopping on a a holiday to Cornwall when in those days, pre-motorway, one travelled through the night and all my extended family, my mother's family, 
hired a minibus and we went through the night to go on holiday to Cornwall. And in the middle of the night, we stopped at a, a place functioning as a sort of overnight cafe, an all-night cafe near Froome, uh, which was actually like a scout hut. And I suppose they'd seen a, a useful a sort of opening in the market with overnight travel of holiday makers in July and August in those days. So they'd opened up. And in the middle of the night, we had beans on toast, which the family all, for the rest of their days, remember as being absolutely disgusting to the taste. And for years afterwards, I only associated that with Froome, I'm ashamed to say. But I came to have happier memories of it when I was training to be um, a tourist guide in the southwest. And I was shown great hospitality there by one of my fellow students, a lady called Barbara, from whom I learned a great deal. And we happily qualified together. And Froome always makes me think of either Barbara or the dreadful beans on toast. So I apologise for that, Barbara, in the event that you actually get to hear any of this. So what is the town like? It is a stone-built town. It's got a deep grey stone. It's carboniferous limestone, not actually unlike you find in, in the Cheddar area and a darker colour than one would find in Bath. Um, and although it's essentially a Saxon town, there are are some evidence there is some evidence of romans in the area this ever-present mendip lead trade mattered a great deal and there was a, a roman road running through towards the the south coast passing uh old serum near salisbury and and down on towards southampton and we know that the romans were there not just passing through because in 2010 actually at the time i was training to be a tour guide there was uh, an immense horde of roman coins found there called the Froome horde there were over 50,000 coins 50,000 of them all dating to the the third century ad uh, they were all in um, a great jar uh, they were found a bit like the staffordshire horde uh, not very long before, um, they were found by someone, a metal detectorist, who knew what they were doing and had a great sense of responsibility and called in the appropriate authorities. But as a town, there's very little that evidence in, in Froome, but there must have been something there because we think this was probably a kind of votive offering. So whether there was some sort of pagan temple or something, we can never be absolutely sure. But there was something there. Um, the name was probably there, been there before. Um, it, it actually comes from a, a British, uh, by, by which I mean Celtic word, for a fast flowing river. And there is some evidence of the, the Saxons having been there as a, a first settlement, possibly using that river for religious purposes. But it's really in Norman time, uh, late Saxon and Norman times, it became important. Uh, we know there was a Saxon parliament held there um, and it ended up at the time of the Norman conquest belonging to King William the Conqueror himself. So it was a place of, of some considerable importance and there was um, uh, an earth and wooden castle built nearby um, not far from Iron Age Hillford. It's called Hales Castle. Um, it was never completely finished probably because uh, as a an important stronghold in the area it was largely overshadowed by something called nunny castle which is now in the care of english heritage and is somewhere you should really really 
search outs there. But it became very much, Froome grew very much as a, a cloth making town of some quality as a, a matter of fact and therefore it made it fairly wealthy there was a lot of money inside that so it was a town that was both strategic and important for economically um it did have a, a bit of a role in the monmouth rebellion in 1685 much later on in the a to z we'll talk about the area of sedgemore uh, which is somewhere that the, the ill-fated Monmouth Rebellion actually came to a, a grinding end. But um, Froome was one of the places that actually declared the, the Duke of Monmouth, who was one of the many illegitimate sons of Charles II. Froome was one of the places that declared him to be king and almost got itself into a, a great deal of trouble. In fact, there's nothing worse in, in war than being on the losing side, except possibly dying. And people like those of Froome who had supported the Duke of Monmouth were shown very little mercy by the royalists afterwards, noticeably when Judge Jeffreys took uh, oversaw the, the so-called bloody assizes in September of 1685. Uh, over 140 of them were hanged, drawn and quartered and then had their, uh, their remains displayed all over the West, sort of pour encourager les autres. Um, I've mentioned that cloth was very, very important. That started to decline a bit like further north into the Cotswolds. And believe it or not, the Cotswolds area of outstanding natural beauty comes well south into Somerset and is not very far from Froome. And that sometimes when I see the sign down there, I think that isn't the Cotswolds. That's up in Gloucestershire and so on. But actually, the, there is not just... Um, a sense of beauty and the same stone down in this part of southeast Somerset, but also um, an, an economic link with the Cotswolds because they are all wool and cloth producing areas. But in the 18th century, the wool and cloth, the weaving trade, all moved away to the north of England as mechanisation began to have something more of an effect. So there was actually a great deal of uh, public upsets in the area. Uh, there was some civil unrest and so on. Um, there was, uh, there were a couple of boosts really. Uh, the Napoleonic Wars took one set of men away, and believe it or not, it's not far from Froome that there's the Somerset coal field. People don't associate Somerset with coal either, but that is also something that was found and was exploited well into the 20th century. So it was somewhere very, very important um, for looking for new uh, new trades, if you like. Um, so we have the military, we have the um, the the, um, the establishment of other industries like coal and there were then attempts to bring in other businesses and you can still very much see that with some of the very very fine industrial buildings that Froome has it sometimes if you take a, the wrong right or wrong turn around a street corner you suddenly feel that you're in a, a northern english town with great warehouses and so on which were often associated i mean selwood's um Selwoods was a printing works, for example, uh, but there are all sorts of other things that are found around there, which were attempts to bring more and more business in. Um, there, there was a, a casting works um, singers who cast some actually very, very important sculpture. Um, 
you fin find statues from through all around the world. Any of you that know the really magnificent statue of Alfred the Great, we've just been talking about him, but Alfred the Great on the Broadway in Winchester, that was cast by singers. Um, there's a statue of Prince Albert, um, which you find now next to um, Westminster Bridge. And a very famous one that was done in Froome was the Statue of Justice with the uh, sword and the scales, which is uh, which sits atop the Central Criminal Court in London, commonly known as the Old Bailey. All of these were cast in Froome. So it's a, an interesting sort of place anyway. Um, the town is on a, a moderately steep slope. Uh, I mentioned that the river, the Froome, actually comes from the, the word uh, fast flowing. But that often gives quite unexpected sort of vistas when you look around the area. You go uh, up one street and suddenly you get an open out view that, that appears. And it's become in more recent years quite a commuter town for some extent Bristol, but much, much more for Bath. A lot of people choose to live in Froome, but commute to work in Bristol and Bath because it's very easy to do. And it's also pretty well connected. It still has its railway station, for example. So you can get, again, Bristol down to the south coast to Weymouth, which isn't too far away. Um, so it does rather well for that. And it also has a rather nice museum, which because of the, uh, the, the problems with streets and hills and so on, the street pattern is a right pain in the backside for architects. They've often had to fit buildings into very difficult sites. And there are a couple of examples, one of which is the Froome Museum, of buildings which look a little bit like any of you that know the Flatiron Building in New York that occupies a very tight corner. There are uh, a couple of those to be seen. And uh, there is the... Um, the Cheese and Grain, which is um, the Agricultural Society Hall, which has all sorts of events, usually entertainment going on. But there is a, an agricultural and cheese show <coughs> takes place every autumn uh, that used to be held in the show, showground at Froomefield. But it's moved out now to uh, a new site just a couple of miles south of the town. But the, the Cheese and Grain is still important for the local arts scene. And uh, if you go for a wander around the town, it does repay all sorts of exploration because it's very, very surprising indeed with its its views. Last but not least, and I, I mentioned under Ling that I try not always to talk about the church, but Froome's original parish church, uh, which dates from the 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 medieval periods between the 1100s and the 1400s, and itself is probably on a, a Saxon um building um that is actually a, a very very fine building um it's much improved in <laughs> improved in uh in victorian times but it has a, a tower with eight bells and a man called thomas ken is uh is buried there who was a, a very prolific in his day um hymn writer um he was also one of the seven bishops as they're called who were um tried by king james the second as one of the things that promoted the monmouth rebellion uh these seven bishops uh all basically explained that james's idea of a future roman catholic england was really not going to be 
acceptable and they shall we say um put their necks on the line and bishop ken's one of them and he is um buried in in uh in Froome church he, his dying words are supposed to be in i am dying in the holy catholic and apostolic faith professed by the whole church before the disunion of east and west and more particularly in the communion of the church of england as it stands distinguished from both papal and protestant innovation and adheres to the doctrine of the cross very interesting idea not liking the idea of Protestantism, just not liking the idea of papalism either. Their idea was that the Church of England was the true church. I know everybody always thinks that, don't they? My way and my God is the right way. But they believed in the Catholic Church of England, not in any sense subordinate to Rome. And in their terms, Protestant didn't mean their idea of protesting against the Roman Catholic Church, it meant, rather as Henry VIII had thought of it, an idea of everyone else is wrong except the Roman Catholic Church in England. Do it our way. <sighs> our country has suffered a great deal, and the people in it have sometimes suffered a great deal because of people's different ideas on religion um i would like to think those days are largely behind us but uh hey what do i know and on that rather opinionated end that brings us to the end of f for Froom. thank you very much for your attention all the way through this we shall be back or i shall be back um in the next day or so with the next episode when we move on to the letters g and h but for now thank you very much indeed for your messages and your feedback and your attention go safely and keep well everyone bye bye <laughs>